Well, good morning to you all. I hope that you are doing well. It was very good. Uh, last Sunday, I'm so thankful that everyone who showed up to our picnic on Sunday was great time, wonderful food, wonderful fellowship, um, and it was a wonderful Lord's Day outside. Um, one thing is for sure, that if the Lord tarries until next year, um, let's remind us to plan to have the picnic, not in June, but in May, so that it would be a little bit cooler out, maybe a little less humid, but it still was a wonderfully great day. Um, but today we're going to continue in our pilgrimage, Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. This morning we are going to cover chapter 11 and into chapter 12. So, as you turn there, let me recap for just a, a moment. Since chapter 7 of Nehemiah, after the walls had just been built, which is right at the end of chapter 6, Nehemiah and the other leaders turned their attention to rebuilding no longer the walls or the city, but the people of God. In Ezra, we know that the temple had been rebuilt with the, uh, a couple generations after the first return ease. Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the walls around the city to help protect the city, to designate that this is the city of God. And then with the help of Ezra and the priest, who is the priest and the scribe, they begin to rebuild the people of God. Ezra is called, excuse me, is called upon to read and teach the law of God to God's people. They reinstituted the feasts and the celebrations. In fact, the scripture tells us in Nehemiah that they, they brought into their, their life the Feast of Tabernacles that they haven't been celebrating. And after a month of that seventh month of hearing the word of God being read to them and taught to them and expounded to them, the people are led to confess their sin before God. That's chapter 9, which they do so in a very heartfelt prayer, recounting God's faithfulness despite their constant failures. You want to know and learn a way to pray and a pattern of prayer? That is a wonderful pattern of prayer, of repentance in the confession of sin, Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, yet in chapter 10, last time we were in Nehemiah, we saw a list began in verses 1 through 26, I believe. And that was a list of all of those who had signed and renewed this covenant that they were reading, which was the rest of chapter 10. So they confessed their sins, and now they are, are repenting of their sin. And they committed themselves to the Lord, family, and their work, and in their worship. But the work of the rebuilding of the people still wasn't finished. Back in chapter 7, verse 4, it lays out a problem that connects with the rebuilding of the people, and that is the city. So, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4 says, The city was wide and it was large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. It's hard to have people come and live in a city when there's nowhere for them to live. 
So our passage this morning is mainly about those who come and repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 23, is a list of all the names and numbers of those who volunteer to move into the city. Verses 25 through 36 list out all the people of Judah and Benjamin who live outside of Jerusalem. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, is another list, but this time it's a list of the, the lineage and the heritage of the, the priests and the Levites who had come into the land with them up to that point. So the line of the high priest, the priest, the Levites, and the priests all the way into the days of the priest Jehoiakim. Now, let's look to Nehemiah chapter 11, and we're going to jump around a little bit, so follow with me if you can. Altoids. Hmm. Chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring out the ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the nine out of the ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in, the, in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 7. And these are the sons of Benjamin, dot, dot, dot. Verse 15, and the sons, or the, the Levites, we see the list of Levites continued. Down to verse 22, the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Asaph, the singers over the works of the house of of God, for there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Pekiah, the son of Eshabel, the son of Zariah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all the matters concerning the people. Now look down to chapter 12, verse 1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shetael, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, and Ezra. Look at verse 8. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benanui, Kadamel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who, were, who was who with his brothers, was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. Verse 12, in the days of Jehoiakim, there were priests, heads of fathers' houses of Sariah, Maraniah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah. Verse 22, 
in the days of Elishahib, Jehoiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of the fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of the fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanahan, the son of Elishahib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kadimiel, with their brothers who stood opposite of them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akkub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy and inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So, it's another list. And it's a pretty hefty one at that. And if my addition is correct, this is our seventh list from Ezra and Nehemiah. And thankfully, it's the last. So therefore, I affectionately titled this sermon, The Last List. Now, once again, the temptation came at the beginning of the week that maybe we should just move past it and go right into the rest of chapter 12 because it's about the, the dedication of the, of the wall. Because after all, I think you guys, you all would would you would sympathize, and I think you'd understand, because, I mean, the, the seventh sermon on a list, what else could he say to us? What else could be done? Well, as tempting as that was, we must rise above it, right? Why are these lists in the scripture? That's the question we have to ask. Every time we come to them, what and why are they there? Why is this list here from chapter 11 all the way through half of chapter 12 and, and even some in the rest of chapter 12, there's little, there's little short lists. Why are these lists here? Is it just to torture us and our pronunciation skills? No. These lists are in the Bible for a reason, just like they are here in chapter 11 and 12. Yes, it's a, another list, but this list in particular is a list of mainly of those who move into Jerusalem, who repopulate God's city. It's a list of those who stayed outside of Jerusalem, and it's a list of the, the priests and the Levites, those who God has used to minister to his people. But it's more than just a list of, of those things. It's more than just the list of people, you know, accounting purposes to know who and what's going on, but it's a list recounting the faithfulness of God. I think we've pretty much said this point now on the seventh time. God's faithfulness. 
These names pointed to the guarantee that Israel and each generation has not been aimlessly floating on their own. These people too, they have their own credentials as God's people. And with each name recounted is a sound of safety that each of them belong and is precious to the Lord. Judah and Benjamin, these two tribes, and the Levites that were there, the tribe of Levi, they had no independent authority on their own. They were under a secular king. But they were a people of of God. They were the people of God whom God had promised. Promises that came before their exile. Promises that were before Persia had conquered Babylon. Promises that seemingly were impossible, but yet God had fulfilled. And it was the Lord had brought them out of exile. It was the Lord that provided for them richly over and over and over. It was God who we've seen over these months, how he has protected them and how he has led them, how he has now we've seen in his last couple of chapters that he has given them his word and that has rebuilt his people in obedience. How God has raised up leaders, given them godly leaders, priests and Levites and governors that would lead them in holiness and obedience. This is a list of God's faithfulness. He has kept his promises. And the list here, like the others, is a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people from generation to generation. This is a hard list to follow. Trust me, there's a lot of names, there's some numbers, it's easy to get confused with all of them and their positions and what's really going on, who they, who they actually talking about. We're not going to get bogged down into all of that, but however I believe that this list, this people that it's, that it's rebuilding the city and rebuilding this people, the, the repopulating of the city of Jerusalem and the list of chapter 12 of the Levites and the, the priests is showing us some very biblical lessons about how as Christians we are to live and even points and parts of it that point us to the gospel. So we have a lot to do. As Christians... As much as possible, we are called to live unimpressive lives compared to the world. Can we make sure that the air conditioning's running? Thank you, sir. Now I'm hot. We are called to live unimpressive lives. Thank you. We are to be people of peace meekness, humility, those who seek to live quiet lives, trusting in the word of God, glorifying Christ, deeply rooted within the body of Christ, working to build the kingdom of God and imitate a savior who showed us how to live. To the world, whose admiration is the pursuit of fame, status, followers, likes, retweets, material wealth, possession, 
power, influence. They all could look at the traits that Christians are to exhibit through their Savior, and they can make the judgment that we are living not, we are not living life to the fullest, that we are living unimpressive lives. But far from it, as Christians, we can be confident that if we live for Christ, even in the most humblest of ways, even if we may lose everything for the sake of Christ and for the gospel, we yet know that his promises are true. And though we may lose everything, that in Christ we gain everything. We gain everything with him for all of eternity. It may be unimpressive here, but it will be glorious in eternity. In Nehemiah chapter 11, it starts out with this list, massive list of people, this group of people with an unimpressive life and with an unimpressive calling. The walls have been rebuilt. The gates were now put in place, but the city was still a mess. We read from Nehemiah 7, 4, and we saw how the, the city was still broken down. It was unimpressive. Nobody was living there. There were no houses, nothing. Thank you, Dick, so much. I can feel it. Nehemiah, you might remember, before he came to Jerusalem, he lived a very impressive life, didn't he? He lived before the, the king of the world, virtually, to move to a city that was broken down and unimpressive. At one time, the city of Jerusalem was where God was at work in the world to advance his kingdom, but now it's just a mess and unpopulated, like a deserted city, like you see in some kind of post-apocalyptic world. And people didn't want to live there. The people have made their homes outside in the villages, outside of the city. They, they like their homes. They like the country life. And who could blame them? Does living in Atlanta appeal to any of you? For many, no. And really, for the same reasons as them. They like their place. They like their space. Suburban and rural life is just simpler and more appealing. It's cheaper. You can have more with more. Living in Jerusalem would also have the inherent risks of danger from attacks of enemies. That would never happen in Atlanta. But the same thing in Jerusalem. So in verses 1 and 2, where they begin to cast lots to decide, hey, we need to repopulate this place. The walls are built. The, the temple's built. We need people to live here. It's time for some of you who are enjoying the country living to come and live in the holy city. And so it was decided, as you can see there in verse 1, that one out of every ten people would come back to the city to get it going, to get it thriving and flourishing 
once again. And you see that. They cast in lots to determine who would, who would come. In verse 2, after all of those who had been selected, it says the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they casted lots to see who would go. And then in verse 2, it says, they blessed all of those who were willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they were certainly chosen, but these chosen individuals were willingly offering themselves as well to go and be a part of God's plan to repopulate and rebuild this city. So God's plan, God's program, had superseded their desires to continue to live the country lifestyle. So for these individuals who became willingly, it became more about the kingdom of God. After all, that's what Jerusalem represented. Moving back to Jerusalem was about the building of the kingdom of God. That was the city of God. It was where God was and where God would be at work. It's where God's people would come and, and worship. And so this calling, this volunteering that they had, and this work that they would do, it was unimpressive, and yet it was also dangerous. But to them, it was still God's city, despite the rubble. So here are people who put God's program over their own individual desires and moved into his city. Their entire lives would be changed. But the whole struggle would be to facilitate the Lord's work amongst his people and to restore the temple worship. So also within this list of names, those who to cast lots and volunteered to move back into Jerusalem. Those who were of the sons of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, there is even more respect to describe these individuals. Verse 6 says that they were valiant men. Valiant men. And verse 8 describes them as men of valor. brave, courageous, will always do what is righteous and right and just. Verse 14 calls them mighty men of valor. This means that among the, the group that, that came back to live in the city, there were these other men who led this group to come into the city, and that these men were seen as like the greatest among them, those who would courageously choose to dwell and live in this desert land, rubble, destroyed city for the sake of God's name, for the kingdom of God. That says, those phrases, that, those description of these people says a ton about this generation of people who moved back into the city. These people who changed their whole lives to give up their desires for the sake of the kingdom of God. Well, who would we look to 
to be these kind of people? Who are those mighty men of valor? Valiant men. Those who would give up everything and take less and take a harder life for the sake of others. Who would willingly give up comfort for what is inconvenient and hard, all for the sake of the kingdom of God and the gospel. I think the first group of people that would come to our minds are maybe missionaries. Those who give up this life to live in hard places, to learn new cultures, to be exposed to various diseases and viruses that they wouldn't have before, to learn and be a part of a new culture and food so that they could take the gospel to a people who seemingly do not have ears to hear the good news. And that's true. We certainly can look at missionaries, we pray for missionaries as being mighty and valiant and courageous. But I believe that there are ways for us in our everyday lives right here where we can choose to willingly offer ourselves for the kingdom of God and do what no one else wants to do. Can you think of anything? Can you, can you come up with anything that we could do, that you could do? Can you think of any places where that could be done? Can you think of maybe right now some people that you could bless, that you could praise for doing the unseen things that make church services, gatherings run and work each week? I know we could, I know who we could bless. How about those who choose to take care of the little children on Sundays? We could bless those behind the scenes at work in our services that make things work smoothly. Those that prepare for the Lord's Supper each time we take it. Those who've moved chairs around, straightened them out, set tables up, tear them down, take them upstairs. Those who keep our book tables straight and guest bags ready to go. And those who count the money and pay the bills that we have. And everyone who prepares food for our gathering meals and picnics. Could we not bless them for doing some of the things that others really don't want to do? Of course we could and should. Romans 12.10 tells us to love one another, but also to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. I think that's what that verse is saying. You're honoring them for what they do and who they are and how they have been a blessing to you. But do you know also that verse 2 is modeling something else for us? Not just something, an ethic that maybe we should do, but it's something that's pre-Christ. 
It's a Christ-likeness. It's pre-Christ, but it's a Christ-likeness. It's a trait of Christ. Because, you see, Jesus is the supreme example of one who left everything. He is the supreme example of a mighty man of valor. When you think of a mighty man of valor, do you think of Christ? He is supreme example of the one who left everything to his advantage. To dwell in an unimpressive people. And to dwell in a place that would not be pleasant for him. It wasn't exciting for him. It wouldn't lead to fame for him. It had no pleasure for him. It was a place where he would come to be crucified. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself willingly by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, taking on flesh, that's the incarnation, that's, that's moving into a very rubble city, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is our example. We don't have to go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 2, and look at these mighty men. We look to Christ. We do the hard things because we look to Christ. We don't do the hard things to receive the blessings from everyone else and the praise from everyone else. We do the things because we want to exemplify Christ. And that builds his kingdom up. And that edifies one another. And then this person then blesses you and praises you and you receive joy from that because you're blessing Christ and you're honoring Christ and you're honoring his body. I don't know if you followed all my hand movements. They made sense to me. He willingly laid down his life for the benefit of others. Why say others? Us. You see, Philippians 2 is also an exhortation. Because up in verse 3, the Apostle Paul is telling the church how we are to live, and that is we are to live like Christ, in that mind of Christ. You saw that in verse 5. Look at verse 3. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, so we're not destroying ourselves for the sake of others, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
Do you want to embrace Christ's likeness? Do you want to recognize Christ's likeness? Do you want to celebrate and rejoice and bless others for Christ's likeness? You know, this is what makes being a part of the church such a blessing. Because here, there are so many of you who are Christ-like. Who give themselves for the sake of others. And you know, I, I, think, I think often we're guilty of thinking that we're not doing, we're not following Christ as well as we are. And absolutely, we're always in need of that, right? We, we know that. But we don't receive the edification and the encouragement from others in our Christ-likeness enough. That I would encourage us to keep going. To keep being like Christ. To keep following Christ. I praise God for our church. And, and I thank you all for the blessing that you have been to me and to my family. How I've seen that love, how I've seen that honor, and how I've seen the giving to one another. And yet I will say to you all and exhort you now to still keep going. Continue to do more as you can. Keep serving one another. Keep praying for one another. Keep being valiant and mighty in a world full of cowards who want to put you down for stupid stuff. We just sang a song this morning, a mighty fortress is our God. Stand on those walls and be valiant and mighty. Keep up with one another. Keep reaching out to one another. Keep helping one another. Keep living a very unimpressive life to this world. But in the kingdom of God, continue to be a blessing to one another, to the church. And as Christ said, storing up treasures in heaven. Second, as we saw unimpressive lives, we see the purpose move in this list of why they're repopulating Jerusalem is for their ordinary worship. If you look down to verse 17, it says, And Mataniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader of praise, who gave thanks. This lineage that's being said in these verses is a lineage that goes all the way back to this dude named Asaph. Asaph, as it says, was a leader of praise, a leader of worship. A worship leader. There you go. How about that? New term. 
And he led the people to do what? To give thanks. Now, does the name Asaph sound familiar? Does Asaph sound familiar? Well, if it does, then you'll know that Asaph is a guy who wrote some psalms. I think there's 12 of them. Maybe you're wrong on that, but I believe there's 12. 12 psalms. We read one this morning, Psalm 81. Asaph wrote some psalms. Asaph was a song leader. Asaph was a song writer. Asaph was a worship leader. And he received no royalties for his stuff. And this lineage here brings it all the way back to Asaph. Why? This is why we ask our questions. Why? 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 The list is telling us. It's showing us why it's bringing all the way back to Asaph. Because again, it's establishing this legitimacy of their worship. It's establishing the, the legitimacy as a people to be able to move back into the city. That they are God's people, but also as God's people, they will lead their people into worship. And these guys in the line of Asaph, Hey, he's in the line of Asaph. He's a worship leader. He knows how to give thanks. It's what he does. It can lead. So it brings legitimacy to the people. So that these people have a continuity with God's redeemed people. So that for centuries later, they know, once again, who they are. We are Israel. And we worship the Lord God Almighty. This is very important because legitimacy does what? It shows their purity as a people. It shows their purity as a people, that they are God's people, and this is the people who has been set apart by God. And what is purity for? What is holiness for? Holiness is for worship. Purity is for Worship. Legitimacy is for purity. Purity is for worship. This part of the list is ultimately telling us about right worship as God's people and that it reflects holiness. Ezra and Nehemiah understood God's holiness and they embedded this list within these, these names within the list so that they would see their legitimacy, their purity, so that they would worship God as a righteous and holy people, a redeemed people that worships him. God created everything for joy. God created everything to give joy. The joy that he would give to his creation is the joy of knowing and worshiping him. That's the mountaintop of joy that we experience, knowing Him and worshiping Him. We were created to worship Him, which is also to say that God created to give joy. Worship of God and joy are in the same stream together. We do not worship begrudgingly. We worship joyfully. 
Joyful, joyful is not always with smiles. Joyful can also be with tears. But we worship with joy. The Bible tells us that rather than enjoying God and worshiping Him, Adam and Eve and all their descendants after them sinned. And they became enslaved to what would destroy themselves, to sin. But that wasn't the end of the story. God didn't shut the story and say, well, I'm done with them, people. No. We see from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, we see the Lord who is mercifully delivering his people over and over again. Noah, Tower of Babel, Abraham, Moses and the Exodus, Joshua, Judges, David, so on and on, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jesus, who would come. We see Ezra and Nehemiah here as God has delivered his people, almost like a second exile, right, where they returned back to the land. God leads them out of slavery and a slavery to sin and brings them back to himself and puts them back on a path that leads to life. And now, as we see in Nehemiah, those who are on this path, they cannot worship with those who are still on this path of destruction. They're separate. They're distinct. Look at Psalm 1, right? And what, that's what this list is representing. A people who has been delivered from a path of destruction to now a path of life. And on that path, what do they do? They worship. And in worship, they enjoy God. The worship that's being restored is for them as a people to enjoy God. Are you on that path? Are you on that path that leads to life, to joy, or are you on that path that leads to destruction? The list that Christians are on is not a list of heritage, it's not a list of lineage. It's not a promise to our grandparents that then we can be Christians just because our grandparents are Christians. There's no lists like that. But there is a list from before the foundation of the world. The list of the Lamb's book of life. And that all those who are, that are Christ's own, he will save. And he will redeem, and he will deliver by his grace. Hear God's word in Titus 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from the lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ has come to save those who are on his list. And for what? For worship. For joy. For joy. To be a people of his own possession, for, for zealous for good works. What is our worship? That we would enjoy God, that we would enjoy our creator, that we would enjoy him as our sustainer, and we would enjoy our savior who is our deliverer. Our worship is that we renounce ungodliness and we live self-controlled in this present age. And we live upright in godly lives, zealous for good works. That is our ordinary worship. That is how we worship. That is how we enjoy God as God's people according to his word. Now on to chapter 12. We see a, a list of priests and, and, and Levites that in verses 1 through 26. And in this list, we see their everyday faithfulness to serve and be priests and Levites. Verses 1 through 7 is the priests and Levites who first return with Zerubbabel and Jeshua under the prophetic ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, all the way up to the rebuilding of the temple in 516 B.C. Verse 10 on to verse 22 is a list of priests and high priests since then. And this is where the list can get pretty confusing because it jumbles a little bit back and forth between uh, regular priests and some of, the, some of the high priests. But it goes all the way down to Ezra and Nehemiah. But this is a list of the priests, the high priests, and the Levites that served all the way from their Return back to the land all the way up to this point of Nehemiah. All the priests who returned, all the Levites who returned, all the priests who rebuilt, all the priests who sacrificed, all the Levites that rebuilt, all the Levites that served in the temple, and all the Levites who, who read and taught the word of God under Ezra in the previous chapters. Now, what does this mean in verses 1 through 26 of chapter 12. Number one, it means that although it certainly hasn't been perfect, we see people still embracing their role and their place in their everyday faithfulness from generation to generation. Right? This is what this says, right? From generation to generation, there's people who have stepped into the place and embraced their role as the priests and Levites. So certainly there's an implication here that we embrace, pursue everyday faithfulness. But there's something more here as well. And more than just our own ethic that we can maybe pull out of it. There's much more in that this, these priests and these Levites, they were embracing their role. But what we see as they are embracing their role as priests and Levites is we see God's faithfulness to them generation after generation to provide priests who could lead the people into right worship in Levites and with Levites to help serve. 
God was providing priests. God was providing servants and Levites to help them, to assist them in the, the right worship of himself. Every bit, every little piece and every name in this list was designed by God's sovereign hand to preserve his people and to preserve the right worship of him. Has God changed that approach at all? Has God changed that, that, that approach at all to, to provide for his people? Is God still providing for his people? Is God still not building his church? Do you know that even today, God is still providing for his people? For you. For me. As surprising as it may seem, because we are oh so small, It always seems that the church is down and out in one way or another. But Christ has promised, I will build my church. The Lord is still building his church. Do you see how the Lord has richly provided for you and your family in the church? Fellowship, friends, churches are made of unimpressive people, including me, who have normal lives and normal problems, but that's where the glory of God will shine most brightly. And we get to behold that in ourselves each other. We behold God's miraculous hand in saving and transforming us. Everyday faithfulness by God's people in light of everyday faithfulness of God to his people. But it shows us something else here in chapter 12. It also shows that these people could not represent themselves. They couldn't represent themselves. According to God's law, according to their sin, they could not represent themselves. They needed a mediator between God and man that would mediate God's law between them. And this role was set up by God, the priests. And these priests showed that a sinful people needs to be represented before a holy God. So through the whole ceremonial law, we see in every one of those bits and pieces of it, we see how much man needs in order to approach God. They need first, they need holy priests. Even those guys, just because they got the name, just because they got the title, doesn't mean that they can just walk right in whenever they want. Read the Old Testament, some try. doesn't go well. 
they in themselves were never holy in themselves. But only through sacrifice could they become holy. A tent or temple with walls, with crazy thick veils were put in place to shield these sinners from a certain death if exposed to the holiness of God. And on and on, we could go listing out all the requirements of mercy in order that measly, sinful man could approach a holy God. A very holy God. The holy God. Is it a wonder then, brothers and sisters, is it a wonder then that God had sent his own son who fully and finally achieved what no priest on this list could ever do? The list of priests with all their lineage could never be enough. The list could be the whole Old Testament, and it would never be enough. But yet in this list, they're preparing a way. They're preparing a way for Jesus Christ, our great and high priest. He who willingly offered himself as the perfect and sinless sacrifice to perfectly atone for our sin before God so that now we would have redemption through his blood. I wish we had time to read Hebrews 9. If you have time today, this Lord's Day, look it up, read it, meditate on it, read it with your wife, read it with your children, and rejoice in the sacrifice that Christ has come as our great high priest to once and finally and fully atone that no priest could ever do. He was our perfect representative and sacrifice so that now we could come as 1 Peter 2.9 says, that we are a royal priesthood. <laughs> How does that happen? How did you become a priest? Where's your lineage? Give me your card. Where is it? Back in the New Testament, Christ. It's Christ. There's my card. It's Christ. We are his royal priesthood, so that now, as his priests, we now can come and we can boldly approach God through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Gosh, this is, this is the gospel, huh? All the way in Nehemiah chapter 11, huh? Ha! It's great. This is, so, this is like a piece, a part, a glorious part of the good news. And if you're down on yourself as a sinner, come confessing to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the great high priest. And through his blood, not by your merit, we sang that this morning, that you could be forgiven of your sin. Oh, that's such good news. That now we, unimpressive, ordinary, everyday people, can come by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Insert amen here. Oh, what a glorious gospel this crazy list of priests anticipates, huh? And as we finish this last list of today, deep breath. And I know that this isn't John 3. 
or like what we studied on Thursday night, John 6, or even Hebrews 9 or Romans 8. These are wonderful passages in the Bible. But what we have seen here this morning is that in Nehemiah 11 and 12, it relates to the redemptive story and the redemptive purpose for this city of Jerusalem. That they would come and repopulate and rebuild. But brothers and sisters, we're not looking back to the city of Jerusalem. We're not even looking at the city of Jerusalem today. We're looking for the new city. We're looking for the new one. And the Bible tells us that God will repopulate, not repopulate, will populate that city. A new Jerusalem where people from all tribes and nations and tongues will come. And Revelation 21 describes this new Jerusalem saying in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city. This is John speaking. I saw no temple in the city. Old Jerusalem had a temple. New Jerusalem doesn't. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. In the new Jerusalem, The people who will dwell there have been chosen. And they will come with their names. And we will dwell with our great high priest there, who will be our son. This is just a list, Nehemiah 11 and 12, but it points us forward to another list. So until then, let us live our unimpressive lives. Let us have ordinary worship and everyday faithfulness. But let us remember the glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed those who are in him, and he will keep us till the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, and we pray, O God, that it would have its full effect in our hearts to draw us to a great joy found in you. That we would rejoice and sing together about this joy. Lord, we thank you, and we praise you. Let our response be edifying and glorifying to you, and edifying for one another. We love you, and we thank you, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.